Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen. It's for April 2018. I am writer hyphen, person who really wanted to talk about the new Avengers, but no one else wanted to see it, so whatever. Lee Zachariah, and with me, as always, is... Hello, I'm writer hyphen, film critic hyphen, not a tame bitch, Rochelle Musimenovich. <laughs> and I'm so thrilled to have our special guest with us this month, who is... Uh, I am Mingzhu Hai, and I am... Um, Writer hyphen director hyphen actor hyphen voiceover artist hyphen professional retweeter. <laughs> <laughs> you were so worried about not landing that joke I and really the look was. on your face after you said it. Damn. Priceless. Damn. This is all staying in. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure it's to have you absolute on. Absolute pleasure to be here. So we've all seen a bunch of films this month that have come out in the month of April. Um, Rochelle, what did we all see? Okay, so the first film that we all saw was Unsane from writer-director Steven Soderbergh, who's proving yet again that he's nowhere near retiring, though whether he'll keep shooting on iPhones is another question and maybe a question we could ask. The story focuses on a troubled young woman played by The Crown's Claire Foy, who's relocated to a new city to evade her stalker. She thinks she sees him everywhere, so she seeks counselling in a mental health facility. But after signing some dodgy paperwork, always read the fine print, she finds herself committed and essentially imprisoned. Her nightmare gets worse when she suspects her stalker is working there too. Lee, did this mental health thriller unhinge you? It doesn't take much to unhinge me. Really anything. <laughs> like the commercials before the film, trailers, uh, buying popcorn. Uh, yeah, no, I, uh, I, I, I loved it because I love Soderbergh. Mm. I love, you know, everything he does by and large. Uh, I, don't, I don't think this worked particularly well because I feel like the script was this really straightforward thriller, like incredibly straightforward. Mm. And his verite style is so unconventional and so... It's unpretentious and uncomplicated, but also very idiosyncratic. And sometimes when you mesh two different styles together, they it's like, oh, we've created something new. But I, I felt it was like a bit chalk and cheese. Are those things that don't go together? Water and oil. <laughs> uh, yeah, water and oil. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I was like, oh, these, these two styles are butting heads against it. But I love his style so much. I was, I was on board. What do you think, Mingju? Um, I really, uh, I, I wasn't on board at all, no. I'm afraid, with Unsane. Um, I was really curious about it because, I, I mean, I was really curious about the fact that he used this technology. I wanted to love it for, for that reason and I kind of thought that it might be a matter of seeing somebody who's really brilliant at telling stories cinematically using something lo-fi and, and therefore kind of lifting us to this different place. But I, I agree, I thought the script was really simplistic and by the numbers but also offensively so as well like it was mm. using yeah, it was using mental health tropes to create entertainment which I think is uh, I, I feel like we, we really don't need to be doing that anymore and I feel like we probably don't need to be showing that level of violence against women on screen at the moment and I also just think that we probably can use better scripts too in in major releases. Yeah, I was I was really disappointed. I I hadn't seen Tangerine mm. prior to having seen this, and I was really curious. So I went away and did my due diligence and <laughs> went and watched Fifteen Minutes of Tangerine after seeing this, cause just out of curiosity. And I I'm yeah I don't know whether there's something about the limitations of the you know iPhone as a 
as a recording device in terms of being able to set up shots and get the level of cinematography that I suppose a, a traditional cinema audience wants, or whether there is a kind of leaning into a naivete that filmmakers do because of the virtue of the fact they're using that media. Like, I, I don't know. There's Like, I've got a lot of questions around it. I think, look, I think in terms of... Unsane Claire Foy's performance was really strong. Mm. I wasn't sold on anybody else's performances particularly. And I, again, I wonder that whether that's the medium and whether the way directorially it was treated. I almost felt like Soderbergh was keeping takes that... Like, I, I felt that actors weren't couldn't remember their lines it was mm-hmm. it was felt really under rehearse i was i was actually at a kind of fucking loss am i allowed to swear uh you are now okay. no, no one has ever sworn <laughs> in the eight years we've been doing this are you serious no i'm not <laughs> <laughs> you've just broken the seal uh yeah I, I walked out just going i don't know i'm i was i was sort of beside myself with yeah it wasn't mm. i don't think it was a good film okay yeah the script was a bit like what if 1963's Shot Corridor was less progressive? Like, yeah. How, how many years ago was that? Anyway, Rochelle, what did oh, you think? Oh, look, I don't know. I don't have a particularly sophisticated critique of it, except that I thought it was effective in, in terms of, you know, scaring me, shocking me. It was kind of brutal at times, but I felt like I'd maybe seen this story before. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked her performance, Claire Foy's performance, mm. and I, I do enjoy films that question the line between sanity and insanity and the way that bureaucratic institutions might might manipulate us you know if we admit that yeah sometimes we have self-harming or suicidal thoughts and like that's a kind of normal part of you know the existential quest of being alive and mm. yet if you admit that you could be kind of committed i think that's kind of scary and, and that interesting. angle should have been brought to the fore instead of this like my stalker is following me yeah. in an improbable way that would have been a really interesting film, wouldn't yeah. it? If there wasn't really the stalker involved, it was just that whole yeah. thing of yeah, questioning your own sanity. Yeah. But yeah, it, I think it's kind of going to be a forgettable film that we just remember for being shot on iPhones. I mean, I think well, the iPhone yeah. cinematography suited the subject matter. Yeah. I think they did well with with you know making the sort of distorts and the bad lighting and all of that work with the subject matter. But I love the back um, of the head, front of the head, like double exposure thing when she's having that episode was just... Uh, that's the sort of thing I love about Soderbergh. Yeah. It does, yeah. So, meh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, and just in terms of the Soderbergh canon, mm. um, the boot scene when she's trapped in the boot, uh, mm. when she's being kidnapped, more sexy or less sexy than out of sight's boot scene? I can't even remember out I of sight. I can't remember. Oh, did, did, Sorry the, to disappoint you. Oh, the, well, that joke landed well. No, what was uh, George, George Clooney and oh, uh, Jennifer right. Lopez. I in don't the remember boot. the boot scene. I remember the film, but not the boot scene. Oh, wow. So most people remember the boot scene and not the film. That's the... Oh. Uh, okay. Um, <clears throat> I'll, I'll rework my material uh, for... Uh, let's see if I have a better joke for... I am not a witch. The next film... <laughs> So in modern day Zambia, an eight-year-old girl is accused of witchcraft by a village. The village takes the issue to local law enforcement, and local law enforcement listens, then calls in a bureaucrat who comes and takes charge of the situation. But neither the police officer nor the bureaucrat challenges the notion that this girl might be a witch. And she's soon taken to a camp of witches where she is used to identify thieves from a lineup of suspects and basically enrich those who control her. Mingju, looking at Rochelle and I, can you identify which one of us stole your car keys earlier? What? 
So what um what what did you what did you make of this film? I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, I thought oh, it was such an impressive debut, mm. and there were it, it worked on so many different levels. But I think one of the things that's really exciting about it is that it's deeply poetic and incredibly funny at the same time, mm. and heartbreaking too. Um, I know the the process of making it. I think for the filmmaker was really personal <laughs> but also I, I think deals with much bigger questions about what it is to be female and the, the role of witchcraft in these countries that do routinely accuse girls and older or children and older women of witchcraft and what that means socially and economically but also really interesting examination or reflection of, of the question of bondage and labour and social hierarchy mm. um, I thought it was this beautiful like there were these these sort of Ruben Ursland, Roy Anderson style uh, shots that she, you know, s- scenes that she just held moments for, you know, a gorgeously long time, and then there were, there were these ridiculous moments of surrealist humour in them, and and that is was actually quite masterful for somebody whose debut feature this was. It was quite beautiful to see somebody storm into the storm onto the scene so with such an assured vision. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the ribbons that are part of this story, the witches are kind of attached to these ribbons that, are, that keep them from flying away and killing people, supposedly. Mm. And, you know, this bureaucrat, Mr Bander, comes to the witches' camp and he gives them better ribbons so they can actually mm. walk further. Mm. I mean, it's a very poetic and yeah. visually arresting metaphor. But I was reading that the filmmaker Rangano Nyoni, I mm. think her name is, Zambian-born, Welsh-raised, mm-hmm. that this was something she made up. Yeah, yeah. And it's not part of the, you know, she'd studied real witches' camps, which yeah. do exist, but this was kind of something that she added to it, which I think was a really nice addition. Yeah. I think, you well, know, the way... some magic realism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it does, yeah. 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 I liked it very much. And, yeah. I mean, this child, what's her name? Um, Maggie Mulabwa. Yeah. She's, she's kind of got this impassive face and yet you know she's suffering you just feel so much for her that this all this this stuff's happening to her she's both revered and and reviled Mm. she's both powerful and powerless and it's this intersection of um you know bureaucracy and capitalism with with superstition that I think really captures what happens in a lot of the Mm. developing world where you know different belief systems are kind of clashing in a really kind of um I don't know, a way that exploits women. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's a phenomenal performance. Yeah. And I, I agree about the direction. Yeah, there's some films you watch and, and just within seconds, something in your mind is going like, oh, okay, I'm in, I'm in safe hands here because they've done something incredibly confidently, just like a shot, they've held on something, they've yeah. done something with the sound. And I got that from, from Word Go on this film. I was just like, how is this a debut film? This is <laughs> extraordinary. I was just like, yeah, I'm sold from like the opening yeah, wow. minute. I just loved it. So, yeah, so confident, so understated. I was always off-put by the strong Western influences over the top, like the the writing on them, the clothes, the blonde wigs, the Kanye West references, the Vivaldi. I was like, Mm. why is there so much Western stuff on here? But I realised it's also surface level. It's all this, like, veneer on top of the culture, which is sort of what the witchcraft is. It's just another controlling force used to manipulate yeah and i thought that was a real those were really interesting choices because they stand out so much because you've got this thing which clearly doesn't 
belong in that culture because it's so... I think they can't even pronounce Kanye. Oh. Yeah, they, they sort of bastardise all of these celebrities. The wigs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the wigs are just so incongruous. Beyonce. And, but the, yeah, but, but also the witchcraft where you're like, we're watching that going, oh, is that part of that culture? But of course, it's the exact same thing. It's this outside thing and this inside thing, which are both used in the same way. It's, it's we're going to control yeah. you and keep you where you are in this, you know, in the social strata, which is just... It opens yeah. up really interesting questions about culture and power and because i mean in a way you could argue that this sort of the westernization these these western elements and the witchcraft you know um the cultural control of the notion of witchcraft have become part of the culture but yeah in terms of how much that holds a form of control over over the populace and and how much it is deeply interwoven into to traditional culture and then I start to ask questions as to what traditional culture is mm. how you how do you identify yourself as um, being of a particular nationality or being of a particular group of you know a particular social group a particular cultural group is is really fascinating and I think one of the things that I felt when I walked away from the cinema after seeing this is oh fuck I see a lot of really western centric film i don't Mm. you know and i and and not just film but art and music and you know consume a lot of western centric literature even when you talk about even when we talk about consuming and creating stories within um the english language canon that are more diverse that are more culturally diverse they're still very much about the um, you know, the, the Australian-British-American mm. um, landscape, cultural landscape. And I think what's really exciting about I Am Not a Witch is the reception that it's had and in, you know, in, the, in I suppose, the Western cinema world and uh, the way in which we are able to remember that we're not completely <laughs> isolated in our, in our cultural superiority. And I think that's really fucking important. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of this was sort of encapsulated in the scene where Mr. Band is on TV with a talk show host showcasing Shula the Witch. Mm. And it says who he is in the, the script under his image. And it says he's from the Ministry for Tourism and Traditional Beliefs. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that just sort of says it all, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a really interesting film. Yeah. Uh, and for something completely different... <laughs> <laughs> Our next film is The Party from writer-director Sally Potter, whose films from Orlando to Yes to Tango Lesson always attempt something completely different from what she's done before. This one's a brisk, dark comedy about an intimate dinner party that unravels into chaos when secrets and lies emerge. Kristen Scott Thomas plays a left-wing politician celebrating her promotion to Shadow Health Minister while her academic husband of 30 years, Timothy Spall, seems drunk and preoccupied. The guests include an acerbic Patricia Clarkson, Bruno Ganz as a ridiculous New Age guru, and Emily Mortimer and Cherry Jones as a lesbian couple sorting through their own conflicts. The champagne flows, a gun appears, and witty one-liners get more delicious by the minute. Was this a delicious dinner party for you, Lee? It was not. Ooh. I am. Uh, I have not heard anyone speak uh, poorly of this film, so I'm. I'm feeling like a, I heard I someone yesterday. Of, did you? Yes. Okay. Well, I, I have been feeling like a bit of an outlier because I was like, I love Sally Potter. You know, I, I adored Ginger and Rosa. Uh, I think she's a fantastic filmmaker, and I'm, and I'm. And this is the type of film that should appeal to me. I love 
mannered dialogue. I love these actors. I love um, sort of bottle movies where they're all contained within a single location. Mm. But it just it didn't work for me. It all felt forced really? and precocious. It was too aware of its own cleverness. And not enough happens. It was like half a film for me. It was like... It, oh, it's only 71 minutes long. Yeah, and there's... <laughs> barely enough plot to cover that film like it's like i don't know it just didn't feel like there was enough progression there was enough happening and the dialogue drove me up the wall i was really? like, yeah I, I did not like this film and it, i really thought it was designed for me like everything about it looked like it would be one of my favorites and oh, i'm afraid not I, I it's it's hard to it's hard to say that but uh yeah i'm surprised what about you Mingxu? yeah i feel fairly similar oh really Do you? Yeah, yeah i i was really hoping to love it I, I, again i love sally potter mm. like a, you know, she's one of my heroes. <laughs> um, and I was really disappointed. Like, I was really, really disappointed. And, like, I still hate myself for being disappointed <laughs> in a way. Um, you know, it, it, I, I love all those actors as well. I went done well, um, sort of, you know, drawing room dramas and comedies of manner. Really uh, fabulous, fabulous um, dramatic spaces to be working in. It felt to me like, and this is maybe hearkening back to a lot of uh, personal issues of theatrical trauma that I have, but it felt <laughs> like sitting in um, the audience of a crappy Australian play. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> There's so much worse than this. Yeah, it, it did. And, 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 you know, alongside a subscription audience who go, oh, no, what's going to happen next? It was kind of like they were, they, these people were in the... In the in the auditorium with us, I was really um, I was really shocked that that people went booing. Really? Yeah, I, I was utterly distraught with how bad the dialogue was and how poor the plot progression was and how little those actors had space to to actually really work in. I thought Gillian Murphy did a, a fantastic job. Mm. Kristen Scott Thomas, who I would marry if I weren't already married, <laughs> really just wasn't given. The space to spread her wings, I felt. What about Patricia Clarkson? Like, I just loved her delivery of her lines in this. I mean, yes, it's mannered. Yes, it's kind of, you know, not realistic. Or, but it was just hilarious. I just I, no, enjoyed this. No, I thought it was too this, much. So I, much. I, thought, I, mean, I felt like when she goes on the attack, it's like... It just she instantly jumps to eleven mm. in the like her character is always I'm attacking you now mm. and it's not like that kind of like understated like I'm gonna you know I'm attacking you but I'm doing it within the constraints of polite conversation so that you don't you can't come back at me kind of thing which is what yeah. that character needed to be I think there was a lot of dramatic repetition there was a lot of textual repetition a lot mm. of dramatic repetition mm. so it felt like the actors were always playing one note mm. but it also felt like they were saying the same thing again and again and again I mean there's only so many times that Bruno Gans should be put through having to do the same oh, job yes. he was he was very enjoyable in my <laughs> mind yeah I look I'm surprised that mm. you guys hated it so much I am wondering how much I was influenced by the fact I saw this at Myth and it was late night and it was such a palette cleanser because right. it was, you know, shot in this crisp black and white. It was funny. It was light. It was short. It just felt like a beautiful bonbon after I'd been consuming these really heavy <laughs> meals. Well, I think yeah, you're in the majority. Right. Like most people seem to really love this film mm. and really enjoy it. So I think, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, that's certainly the majority of your opinion. Um, okay. 
Okay. It's just Mingju and I who are outliers and will be cast out of society. We will be cast out of society, <laughs> obviously. On the basis of this. Don't worry, <laughs> Sally Potter's next film will be completely different. Of this, we can yes. be assured. Yeah, yeah. and that's what's wonderful. I think that is what is absolutely wonderful about her body of work is that she is, like, she's a crowd pleaser, but she's also a true experimentalist. I don't, yeah, yeah. Mm. She's she's a really fantastic artist. Well, from twitches and witches to riches and now bitches, we come to the Isle of Dog. Thank you, I was. Uh, I enjoyed that. Uh, it's the near future in Japan, and a dog flu virus has seen the authoritarian mayor of a city banish all dogs to Trash Island, which is an island of trash. The mayor's ward and nephew, Atari, isn't having any of it, and he runs away to Trash Island to find his beloved pooch. After crash landing his light aircraft, he befriends a gang of dogs, Rex, King, Duke, Boss, and Chief and they help him on his quest. Isle of Dogs is the ninth feature film from Wes Anderson and his second stop-motion animation after Fantastic Mr. Fox. As many people have pointed out, Isle of Dogs sounds like I love dogs. So, Rochelle, did you love I love dogs as much as you love dogs? (laughs) I love my own dog, and I hated this film. I just hated it so much. I just couldn't relate. I didn't care to be in the cinema. I was wanting it to be over after ten minutes. I found it ugly, I found it pretentious, I found that... How can you have a film full of dogs that aren't even cute or charismatic or lovable? Like, it was just really... felt really flat for me. But otherwise, okay? But otherwise, yeah, sure, go see. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Mingzhu? Um, well, I think, you know, we're, we're going to need to address the elephant in the room, which is the question of cultural mm. appropriation. Mm. Um and it's everywhere. It is, this, is, this is a film that is drenched in inappropriate use of somebody else's culture mm. um, or tropes from. Um, and I think, yeah, it, it is, it's almost difficult to talk critically about the film without f- just feeling mm. an extraordinarily high level of anger towards mm-hmm. what Wes Anderson's done and the fact that it got financed and the fact that so many people signed on, that there hasn't been a consistent and vocal level of criticism towards this even as a concept from mm. his collaborators is deeply disturbing and is sort of an indictment as to the, you know, the, the, the status quo of the Western Hollywood monolith <laughs> that, that pervades um, it's really really disturbing that this film got made um, actually uh, but otherwise okay sorry I'll stop I <laughs> <laughs> thought it was quite boring <laughs> I, was, I was you know aside from do I go in like do I go into detail about this the just the, the, the way in which the culture was mocked and the way in which there is no... I mean, it just exists on so many levels. So, you know, you've got a white person who is considered hip, um, whose body of work is revered by a lot of people who would consider themselves hip, and they're using somebody else's culture to, you know, for further cultural kudos. But this is a minority culture in a Western world, and um, it's a culture for which a lot of people have been um, discriminated against and, and, and persecuted for, aside from the fact that it's... It's it's a you know it's a minority culture. It's represented within the West as a minority culture, um, and there's a lot of people who you know it, it is that that whole thing about cultural appropriation is I am considered an outcast because I am otherized in this way by the broader you know the broader power group. Whereas when the power the broader power group takes on an element of my culture for which I'm derided, they automatically get cool status you know cool mm. points, um, mm. and that's exactly what what I think I feel Anderson has done here 
yeah, the use and abuse of the, the tool of haiku and all of the imagery and the fact that there needed to be translators to translate Japanese into English and then there was no subtitling of, of mm. the Japanese language that was used in it. The blatant World War II imagery, it's just like it, it kept on dealing blow after blow after blow. And then icing on the cake is that there's this whole other level of misogyny as well in, oh there too, in terms of the depiction of the, like, yes. the sexy female dog. It's like, oh, fuck off. Mm. Like, fuck right on. Yeah. Anyway, fuck, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you say to Anderson's um, response that this is a, an homage to Japan, what? to Japanese culture? I, you know, like that he's, that he's celebrating it. I think that's one of the cast members now in the background. Sorry about all the dogs in my neighbourhood. <laughs> <laughs> there is nothing that is like, yeah. That I do, I I wouldn't even know where to begin mm. with that because mm. it is just a complete. Well, that's that's a response of somebody who comes from an enormous amount of privilege. Mm. Mm. I would, that's pr- pretty much all I could say to mm. that. Really, you can't argue with that because it's just like we. Yeah. We, we're talking. We're talking two completely different languages, there, my friend. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that the um, the saviour is the student, she's an ex- exchange yeah. student and yeah. she's American, mm. so, yeah. she, you know, the white current was kind of the, the saviour. But, um, yeah, I mean, Lee. Lee? You didn't tell us. Do you like uh, it? Do so you I love it? <laughs> no, I'm actually, like, this is... So, I'm, a, I'm generally a huge Wes Anderson mm, fan. Same. Um, this one didn't do it for me and mm. I'm actually quite surprised because when I looked at the elements and just like completely looking at production elements of like how shots are framed and how funny dialogue is and just on a basic level I, I, I couldn't fault the aesthetics of it so I was like okay well those lines were, were, were funny and I guess the plot works and I like the, I like the look of it because I, I love Fantastic Mr. Fox mm. but it just it didn't come together for me and I was mm. like and I real I actually saw it with someone who didn't like it the first time, came back to see it again because she thought, oh no, I must have missed something and mm. didn't like it the second time either. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. This is like this is way down the bottom of the of the, the Anderson canon for me. Mm. It's um. Did you like the aesthetic of it though? Because I found it really flat, brown, grey, ugly. I, I like. I enjoy that. I, okay. I enjoy it. I'm, I'm a very depressed person. <laughs> <laughs> I have issues, and that's the kind of aesthetic I respond to. Mm. But, uh, Look, I mean. Mm. I, I actually just don't think it was a particularly strong film either. You know, all of the glaring cultural issues aside, I, it wasn't as strong as Fantastic Mr. Fox. There was no real central character that you related to or liked. Like, all the dogs kind of blended into one. Yeah, and they've all got the same names as I just listed them. They're kind of, they're designed to be Duke, Chief, King, Rex. You know, they're designed to sound like each other, but, and I wasn't sure, yeah, who were meant to be. should have been Atari. That should yeah. be, he should have been the central character. Yeah. It was his journey. It really should have been mm-hmm. him. And I think, yes, I think there were major issues with scripting. And I think, you know, you can see why. Mm. Yeah, I don't, I think it was probably, you know, a, a flawed effort to begin with, really. Indeed. Hmm. Well, that brings us to Avengers Infinity War, the 700th film in the moment. No, 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 don't fade up the music. God damn it. <laughs> Now, the Cannes Film Festival is only days away, and unusually for Cannes, it's mired in controversy. (laughs) (laughs) This year, it's controverse door is the news that it will ban Netflix films from playing in competition. I actually Google translated that to make sure I had the pronunciation right, and still didn't get it right. Doesn't matter. Uh, You speak French, don't you, Mingju? Un petit peu. I'm sorry, I don't don't speak Spanish. (laughs) Cannes is committed 
to preserving the tradition of cinema, and if Netflix is not going to release its films into French cinemas, it says, then it will not be permitted to compete in competition. That's what that means. Then it will not be permitted to compete <laughs> alongside those that will. Can Festival Head Terry... Oh, God, why did I write This that? is going so well. It is, isn't it? Uh, gonna... Thierry Fremont, I think. Okay, let me try that again. Can Festival Head... Thierry Fremont. Thank you. Added... <laughs> <laughs> With no small amount of bitchiness, uh, the Netflix people love the red carpet and would like to present with the other films. <laughs> But they understand that the intransigence of their own model is now the opposite of ours. Uh, so where do our sympathies lie? <laughs> <laughs> Do our sympathies lie with the film festival trying to preserve the tradition of big screen cinema? Or are we more sympathetic to the work itself? Films by people like Alfonso Cuaron, Bong Joon-ho and Suzanne Beer, regardless of who they're funded by. What do we think? Answer now. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is really tricky because it's like the two models of cinema, the traditional model and what's happening now with Netflix funding $8 billion, you know, worth of content every year or whatever. Mm. I mean, this is going to be a bigger and bigger issue for festivals mm. and for Cannes to be backtracking on this is is interesting, but I don't know how far they can, um, how long they can keep up that line. Mm. I mean, as far as I understand, the big issue is the French cinema distributors yeah. Yeah. who say that a film cannot be on a streaming or VOD service for 36 months after. 36 uh, months? 36 months. So Get essentially out. three mm. years after it's been in cinema. I didn't realise it was that long. So mm. that's just not going to work with a festival model. Oh, look, I think this speaks to a, yes, a broader issue about what the future of filmmaking is and what the future of cinema, cinema and cinema going is as well. I mean, I do deeply understand where Khan is coming from and this does, I mean... I love the <laughs> massive Francophile and, and one of the things I love about them is their pig-headed insistence mm. on clinging to the way things have always been done and what they what, what they would consider to be, you know, a, sort of a benchmark of French culture, which is ensuring that the cinema experience is the cinema experience. Mm. It's a really big part of what it is to experience, you know, to, to consume artwork. And then on the other hand, you've got the fact that Netflix is allowing filmmakers to make mm. work and so they're allowing us to experience work. They're allowing us to you know, partake in art. And I think there is a little bit of a, a political dissonance there or an economic dissonance in a way. It's about the fact that Netflix can't preserve the specificity of the release requirements of... Yeah, yeah. It's, they've all got different... You know, the distributors don't like Netflix. Netflix is funding this stuff, so they want to put it out as soon as possible. Mm. And they're uh, not going to release it theatrically. No. Necessarily, or probably not at well, all. Well, they're starting to invest mm. in cinema screens in, in the US. I think oh, so wow. they can make them eligible for the Oscars. Right. And I think that's interesting because it also... Most of Canopy members watch films on screeners anyway, so mm. it's just this knowledge that it has played in the cinema even if they haven't watched it. It's the whole medium versus the message thing. I mean, yeah. California is trialling LED cinema screens and leaving aside whether that's a good idea or not, What do you mean? Uh, they're, they're actually going to try a new type of screen, which is an LED, basically a large television. What, how large? As uh, in cinema size cinema, screen. Yeah, well, it's going to be really high quality. But projection... Maybe but that, but it's out. still the same cinematic experience. It's still the same thing of you buy your ticket, you go to, you go yeah. to another venue, you leave your house and you go and you sit in, a dar in the but, dark. But even so, the, the difference between watching something at home on your TV and watching something in the cinema, this is 
eroding another difference between them. So there is now this, this weird spectrum between the pure cinema experience of film being projected through to digital, through to an LED screen sitting in a room with strangers, through to watching it on your massive TV at home. Like, it's now, what, what is cinema, to, to uh, coin a phrase that we use to make fun of people who say, what is cinema? Um, but, I mean, I mean, there are good reasons for this. Uh, the Oscars do have that eligibility qualification which is a necessary filter, I think, so that you're not just getting the thousands of films. I mean, Cannes has all of these side bars where films that are not in competition just come and play in there, and, and they're like terrible direct-to-video, just mm. nonsense. Um, hey, aren't they banning selfies on the red carpet at Cannes? Isn't that yeah, what ter- Terry... What's his... What, ter- Terry... Uh, t- uh, Thierry... Thierry Fremont? <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't he said this is what they're doing? Yeah, there's a bit of... Trying to bring some class back. Well, I think that's out there. There's also a sexual harassment helpline. Well, that's... Really? Yeah. Can can you call it on the red carpet or will they keep the same yourself? I think you're going to have to. I think, uh, yeah, I think class went out the window when uh, Will Smith and Angelina Jolie rode that Shark Tale-themed motorboat a few years ago. Um, So, I don't know. It's, It's like they've got to... I think this is going to go out the window when, you know, if, if Netflix is funding Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Right. And then uh, that ends up in Venice or Berlin. And suddenly they're, get, because they don't have a Netflix rule, suddenly they're getting all the titles. I think Khan will reverse this. So, right. So that's the question. Is there an inevitability that this is not, they're not going to be able to hold out mm. for that much longer be, just because of the way the, the mm. film landscape is changing? Yeah. And I think. I, I, yeah, I, I think they're. I get where they're coming from. We all want to preserve the cinema experience. It's a mm. very important thing. But it's... It, they're kind of... You know, they're, they're pushing against the tide. They're, mm. uh, they're all canutes. We've got to remember they're, the French are incredibly stubborn about their culture, so mm. they could hold out. And, mm. I mean, to their own advantage, too, the way they've kept their... You know, they collect a, a certain oh. percentage of um, film um, ticket prices to invest back mm. into the, their own industry. Mm. They're very protectionist and... You've got to kind of admire that. Oh God, absolutely, and that's and why it, they have such a strong film industry. I think so too. I think what it be, yeah, it does actually genuinely mean that that um, filmmakers can still experiment. They can still be artists rather than simply entertainment producers, and that's a really important thing. That you know, I I know they're not directly linked, but there is a correlation. There is a, a distant correlation between the way in which they protect industry on one end um, will absolutely trickle down to the other. Yeah. I mean, that, that is a really good point, but I don't know. I, I just think it's not going to last. This ban is not going to last. So mm-hmm. and I think, I think you know, if I'm gun to my head, I, I have to side with Netflix on this because, you know, cinema is going to change. You know, it's, it was the way it was out of necessity, mm-hmm. out of, you know, mass distribution was not possible the way it is now. Uh, when cinema started and we're just used to a certain type of model and you know I'm still only going to watch 2001 A Space Odyssey on 70 mil you know when I can but you know we, you're not normal I'm not normal um, I think <laughs> we've established that I think what it also calls for is um, a, a, a kind of a plural definition of what the cinematic experience mm. is mm. too because I do think that there is as you've just said enormous value in being able to go to the cinema and see something in a, a larger format that you know, doesn't necessarily suit sitting in your living room or watching it on your laptop screen or, mm. you know, what the young people are doing, which is on much smaller screens. Um, but, I, yeah, I think there is an inevitability of... I think the world has changed and I think the way in which we consume media generally has changed. I, I think that we have to sort of embrace the fact that 
we now have multiple understandings of what cinema or what uh, you know yeah of what cinema and what cinema practice and, and audience you know audience practice is all right so Ming Zhu mm-hmm. please tell us whom have you selected for your Hell's Five Minutes filmmaker of the month uh, I selected Steve McQueen the actor <laughs> I promised myself I wasn't going to do that, and I couldn't resist. The actor, uh, the filmmaker, the director ah. Steve McQueen, the director artist Steve McQueen. Right, mm-hmm. right. He of Hunger and Shame and Twelve Years a Slave fame. Indeed, and a very significant body of work as a video artist or, uh, I suppose, um, art-based filmmaker prior to these films as well. Well, that, that's actually key because we try to... Many, many years ago, we had a guest on uh, in our first year called uh, Rochelle something. I forget the surname. And uh, she picked Sophia Coppola and we realised uh, it was quite early in Sophia's uh, career. I really enjoyed that episode. <laughs> you can... Uh, and fi- you, Listeners, you can find the link in our show notes. Uh, and yeah, and Sophia hadn't made that many films at the time. And so afterwards, we were thinking maybe we should make some sort of rule where if they haven't made five films, like five features at that point, uh, we'll ask for someone with a few more films behind them. Mm. Uh, that's not a slight on you at all, mm. Rochelle, mm. I should say, because that was a great episode. Not threatened at all, no. Oh. Um, and when, yeah, when you uh, suggested Steve McQueen, I was like, well, three feature films, that's not enough to talk about. But then looking through all of the things he'd done beforehand, which I was not aware of, the mm. short films, the art installations, he won a Turner Prize, yeah. music <laughs> videos, TV commercials... The guy was prolific before he we'd heard of him. Mm. So yeah, that's quite a significant body of work he's mm. got. Yeah, and look, and this is this is um, I'm going to be political again. Jeez, <laughs> how unexpected. Um, I mean, one of the things about I, I think this is this is something that um, is is really worth addressing is when you do have something like you know the an understandable five film minimum, you know, as a body of work to talk to, um, I, you know, I absolutely understand why that exists, but one of the things that you miss out on a lot of the time is um, a greater level of representation um, from women filmmakers and filmmakers mm-hmm. of colour because those opportunity, the opportunity to build a body of work that is that dense and uh, often has that level of longevity is not mm-hmm. there. And I think one of the, you know, <laughs> conversely, one of the exciting things about Steve McQueen is that he did come to filmmaking... Um, narrative film, a narrative filmmaking practice a little bit later in his mm. career because he was so prolific, um, uh, you know, as, a, as an artist. And he won the Turner Prize at the age of 30. Bastard. Bastard. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think, believe, I believe beating out Tracy Emin that year who was hyped mm. to win it. Like, he's quite an extraordinary wow. artist. And I think it's, it's, you know, I actually hadn't heard of him before he made Shame. I think the first time I'd heard of him, I think the first time I experienced him is through a um, a Hollywood Reporter roundtable clip Mm. in which he was talking about the lack of representation of people of colour in this room full of, like, all-white, (laughs) super-powerful director dudes. Um, And he's the only black guy there and the only guy... uh, Sorry, there there were no women. He was the only black guy there and there were no women and that was very much commented upon um and so i thought i'd investigate his work and watched um hunger Mm. and was completely hooked right if shame was the first film that you came to of his is that what you were no 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 i i it was i think it was recently after he'd made shame hunger was was the first film oh okay yeah yeah 
So what did you love about it? It was... I think the thing that I love about his body of work, so, well, about his style as a narrative filmmaker, is that um, he doesn't, and he cer- certainly didn't with Hunger, uh, and to, to, a, um, to a slightly lesser extent, Shame, um, didn't rely on, doesn't rely on standard filmmaking, I, doesn't rely on the rules. So he's definitely coming uh, at the work from a much more painterly place mm. um, and what was really exciting for me was like I sort of feel kindred with him in a way because of the notion of the plurality of practice so you know he really does bring all of his intelligence and um, experience as a visual artist as a video artist in terms of holding shots mm. for a really long time and allowing there to be space and stillness and allowing us to see work occurring in real time um, allowing us to really sit with the sort of very deep and almost spiritual experience of, of a, an, a single actor's performance without feeling the need to cut away. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of... I think that you could watch Hunger again and again and again and um, learn so much about the architecture of performance and the mm. architecture of, comp, you know, composition, mise-en-scene and montage mm. just from that one film. I think there is something exquisite about the poetry with which mm. he stitched it together. Um, you know, in terms of it being a contemporary film um, from the uh, English language canon as well, I was, I'm used to only seeing that kind of filmmaking from in foreign film, really. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I mean, Hunger had that 23-minute scene oh, where God. Bobby Sands is talking to the priest. Amazing. And it's just... You know, just this verbal scene of two people talking to each other, mm. and it's utterly captivating and yeah. almost violent in its yeah. in its kind of impact. Yeah. So I'd heard about that uh, long take, but I, I kind of had it in my head that it was going to be some sort of uh, uh, you know someone trapped in a cell, something happening, something you know with physical violence. And I didn't realise until we're at least five or six minutes into this single take of two people talking that mm. this was the one everyone had talked about. Mm. And it really, yeah, it was. it's so effective. It drew me in. And for someone who is... So his short films, and we managed to track down a few of them to watch, they're really interesting, but they're very, very artsy in a way where I feel like I'm on a knife's edge and I could go either way with them. I'm like, is this pretentious or is this really good? Well, I think the thing about them is they're not short films, they're works of video art, and they are yeah. not designed to be watched in the cinema. Mm. Um, they're designed to be seen in a gallery and yeah. the context of viewing a work like that in a gallery is completely different because a lot of the time um, as a viewer you are walking into a space halfway through the reel mm. um, and a lot of the time with some of those I think um, it was which ones were it was Western Deep and um, Carib Carib's Leap Carib's Leap and Western Deep uh, two films they are called two films they have one name each but they are designed to be played at the same time across two screens Um, and they're designed to be I mean I think this is uh, this again comes back to the notion of what the definition of cinema is and can we have cinema on small screens something that is very specific I think about video art and I feel incredibly strongly about this is the um, physical is the kinesthetic relationship between the audience and the and the work and the the scale um, upon you know with which these works are projected. I think that Steve McQueen 
would probably be deeply distraught by the fact that we'd seen the works on laptop screens. And I know that I was reading one one interview, I think something like the New York Times, where um, the person, the journalist who was going to be interviewing him went into the archives of this uh, establishment and was able to watch his entire body of work but was only able to view them on on laptops. And I think the way in which it was, you know, discussed that they'd seen it was that... In effect, they'd seen reproductions of the work. They'd seen mm. sort of it, it, it was a simulacra of an experience of of witnessing his work. The actual experience of witnessing these works is to be in a space, to be in a gallery space, and to have that physical relationship to the proximity of them. I'm, I'm so glad you said that because I sort of clocked while I was watching them. Oh, these are meant to be projected on a wall in a gallery, and I tried to watch them in that sense. Oh. Like I sort of put my laptop up a bit higher on the thing, <laughs> and I just sort of stood there, like rather than like Great. sitting at a desk or something. And I was sort of like, this is going to sound really silly, and it was very silly at the time. But I sort of like walked around, like I moved around a bit, right. and sort of watched it. And and they, and I enjoyed it a lot more that yeah. like watching it closer to what was intended, and. But they are still very, you know, they're, they're very um, non-narrative. And so when he mm. goes to a narrative and he goes to dialogue, mm. story and characters, it's sort of alarming at how well his aesthetic and his style fits into that mm. and how great a storyteller he is mm. given he wasn't really telling stories in a traditional sense for the first part of his career. And, like, I mean, I think Hunger, Shame and 12 Years a Slave are perfect. I loved... Uh, I only saw Hunger for the first time recently. I loved Shame and 12 Years a Slave at the time mm. and loved them even more re-watching them. Mm. They're just extraordinary works. And it's it's he's he, I think he must be one of those artists who just works at every, like anything he turns his attention to, he's good at. You know those people who can just... And now it's horrible, isn't I it? <laughs> <laughs> it's so annoying. Um, yeah, so, and I think that, like, I think that comes across in 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 that scene in particular you know in in all of his narrative films it's because he's an essentialist really he knows what he's doing and he knows exactly what it is that he wants to achieve is and he's doing it for very very particular reasons when he's telling a story he is telling the story and so that epic scene with uh liam cunningham and michael fassbender which i'd also heard about before seeing the <laughs> film um I think one of the things about it is that the intention is incredibly pure. There is a very, very clear directorial objective there. Um, and I was watching um, some of the DVD extras recently, an interview with him about shooting that scene, um, and he said the way in which they lit it was really uh, quite exciting as well because these men were lit in mostly silhouette. Um, and it's a two-shot, like it's it's this sort of longish two shot where you don't get to see it's not a setup you know it's not a two-hander setup with standard reverses it's really you are as an audience member being let in on this conversation so you have to lean into the screen mm. in order to you know there's a huge part of the first section of the dialogue you don't necessarily or ears isn't necessarily tuned to the dialect either so you're really having to listen very hard um and by the end of that you know that period of time you're completely in there with them and you recognize the genius of the placement of this of this incredible two-hander but he was also saying that you know in rehearsal Fassbender had had wanted to get up and move around and you know he wanted to stand and walk around you know this is what you do as an actor is you want to move it and you want to Mm -hmm. experiment with different ways of doing it And, and McQueen had to be 
really clear and say, no, 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 no. Just trust. Trust that you can just sit there and be in this scene uh, and and that is incredibly powerful and um, and he did obviously and it and it's exquisite and I can't you know see it working if you mm. exploded and dissolved the uh, dramatic energy in that way I, I think it would actually shatter shatter the scene and not in a good way I think what uh, makes that such a, an exciting centerpiece is how it's contained how it's crystallized how precise it is mm. yeah it's it's a beautiful um, like it is it's actually a beautiful uh, masterclass in writing in direction and in performance that one scene yeah he has a lot of those long scenes long takes um, you know confidence in the material mm. not feeling like he has to edit away a lot like in shame and 12 mm. years a slave there's that that really extended whipping scene um, yeah yeah so mm. that's kind of maybe one of his signatures would you say yeah, uh, yes, absolutely. And again, I think it does come... It, it, it comes back to... Um, I, I can't say for certain. It would be for him to answer. Um, but I think there are really strong resonances in even in 12 Years a Slave, which is much more of a Hollywood... Like, yeah. <laughs> it's really slick. <laughs> um, there's a lot of money there. Uh, that it... You know, the, the, it, it harkens back to his video artwork and it harkens back to the fact that he draws the moment out like a taut piece of elastic mm. um, and he doesn't feel the need to cut away. Um, at, but, you know, similarly, like if you look at his work, his early work, Bear, the um, video artwork with the two men wrestling and he's, he's one he's of the men. Of them, yeah. the, the, like the, the cutting in that is quite extreme. Yeah. The fact that, you know, the, the, his play with angles is really extreme and his play with uh, shifting the semiotic of body and the, you know, the, 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 um, the chemistry-based relationship between the two men is, is fast and it's furious. Um, there are elements where he holds it and then he'll cut and it will be incredibly... Um, frantic yeah. um, in in its wake, and so he's clearly playing with the dynamics of rhythm way back then, and and that's really yeah. I don't know. It's, There's a lot of really cooler shot effect editing in that in that in that shot where you're like they're looking at each other and you're like oh we're about to kill each other and then they hug and they start laughing and then they fight again and it's like oh yeah it's really. You know, it, it almost feels like he's inventing cinema and that someone forgot to tell him cinema already exists. And so he's going through the process that all those early pioneers went through to, to, to get to get there himself, mm. um, which is a kind of grandiose way of saying uh, I like the editing in that short. But, um, <laughs> but uh, I also love in his features, watching them all together, seeing how much he loves detail. You know, it's not just the long, wide takes. He'll often start a scene with detail, hands in water, crumbs... Mm. You know, or is it, uh, hunger starts with a lid slamming onto a ground. Mm. He likes to start on detail and then reveal the context, mm. which I find like is is a very sort of not a, not a standard filmmaking technique, but it's sort of it's more familiar to me as someone who doesn't come from the video art world. So that's something I can identify as like, oh, I I can I can understand that technique, that sort of detail, then a wide, as opposed to someone like you know coming back to Soderbergh, someone who refuses to ever open a scene on a wide establishing shot. Mm, that's interesting. I, I really don't. That's I really. That's fascinating. <laughs> no, because I don't remark on. 
I think I don't remark on film in that way, and maybe that's because I don't come from a traditional filmmaking background. Um, one of the things that I, I do observe about that, though, or maybe this is the way I interpret it, is that what he's doing is he's writing poetry mm. with his work. And so the choice of the way in which he reveals information, um, you know, whether it's detail first and then wide or how long he holds something or the way in which he cuts or the, the dance he has between characters, I think, is about how the poetry unfolds. It's, it's about, you know, in, in his narrative films, it's about telling the story through a way that makes sense internally as a human being, not necessarily in a literary way. And I think one of the things that's really exciting for me personally about Steve McQueen, which is why I love his work so much, is that it's it feels a lot less literary than a lot of than a lot of contemporary filmmakers, you know, from the English language canon. If you had to pick one of your favourite Steve McQueen feature film. Uh, which one do you think resonates the most with you? Oh, definitely Hunger. Mm-hmm. Although I watched Shame Again recently and I went, oh, fuck, it's a good film. I, I think love it. I did not realise, I, I, when I watched I think I watched it for the first time shortly after I'd seen Hunger and Hunger had had such an impact on me that I was like, yeah, shame, eh. mm-hmm. But now I, I watch it, maybe it's because I saw it after I saw I Love Dogs. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, I sat and I, yeah, I, wow, God, it's a good film. Mm. It's, it's an exquisite film. I, I still, I have to say Hunger. I think structurally it's, um, I think it's clearer, it's simpler, it is more poetic. It's close for me. I mean, it's maybe it's just a, a, a point of bias. For me, it is slightly closer to his fine art practice too. There's this mm. wonderful interview uh, that he does he and, he and Fassbender do after having made Hunger. I think possibly after having made Hunger, maybe shame. I don't know. They make a lot of films together. <laughs> um, where the interviewer asks McQueen how different his process is, the, how differently he runs sets to other people. And McQueen says, I don't know. I've never been on anybody else's set except my own. And I'm like, aha, that is, that is true. That is so clear. And that is what is so wonderful, I think, about his work. And what excites me about what you just said with regards to, you know, him developing his own history of film <laughs> practice within his body and his body of work um, is that he doesn't, I mean, yes, I, I know he's seen, you know, he's very widely watched and very widely read in terms of film text, but. Um, I think what's wonderful about him is that he doesn't come from a filmmaking practice. He doesn't come from the world of typical Hollywood cinephilia. He comes from, um, you know, he comes from his own world. Mm. He's, he has built that language himself and he's built um, a professional uh, ethos himself. And I think that really, you know, the way in which he um, philosophically approaches running a set comes across absolutely in the work that he produces, um, and it's very, very clear to me in Hunger, but also in the way in which his collaborators talk about working with him, which is they gush. Mm-hmm. They absolutely gush. They talk about him without any reservation or uh, any squeamishness as a genius and as just, you know, somebody that you would work with again and again and again, and that is really, for me, the hallmark of somebody who is um, not just a, a great artist but a really good, good, responsible human being. Hmm. Mingzhu, I was wondering how 
um, Steve McQueen's work and his practice might have influenced you as a storyteller, filmmaker, creator of um, boundary-pushing narrative? Like, do you are there things you'd like to take or that you do take from it? Yeah, um, that's interesting because I've been thinking about that a lot. Mm-hmm. I think uh, rewatching his, particularly his early work, um, and particularly seeing how much hunger was informed by his video artwork and and really seeing how gorgeously that is pieced together as a full narrative. I think the the main thing that I personally take from that as a filmmaker is um, the level of permissiveness uh, within form and and just how deeply you can tell narrative, how you can share narrative with a form that isn't um, constrained to... Oh, you know, traditional three-act structure and the way in which we're told film fits together, that you can um, push things as far as they need to go within the realms of the artistic truth, the defined artistic truth of the work. Um, And that means that you can kind of do anything so long as it's true, so long as it's right. And really in terms of um, what I take from him, it's that uh, philosophical and poetic approach to making cinema is there uh is there anything that you are making or that you're appearing in that you'd like to point people towards um uh well i recently finished um my second short intrusion um which will find its home somewhere this year um so that was that's a really wonderful thing to have finished i spent way too long making i think it was two years in the making um and I'm writing, um, a f- uh, I'm, I'm writing another feature film script at the moment, which I think I'm going to play with improvisation in, which um, terrifies me. I just realised that the other day. I was like, oh, fuck, that's something that I've never done before, um, uh, which I intend to shoot in a micro-budget capacity this year. That's the, that's the genuine intention. Awesome. Um, and as an actor, uh, I'm in a couple of films this year. <laughs> Excellent. People have to yeah. go searching for yeah, her because right. she's apparently not going to name them. <laughs> but you did appear in a trailer that everyone uh, I saw online was sharing and very excited about. But you'll have to figure out what that is, listener, because she's not going to tell you. Right, that one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank, thank you so you. much for having me. And we'll see the rest of you next month. Ta ta.